Hey guys, Haley Lear here and welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I'm super excited to have you guys and this is an episode that I'm telling you is going to keep you on your toes. The first time I heard about this case, I was in shock. We are going to take a nose dive into the case of Stephen Stainer. Now, for those of you who don't know who Stephen Stainer is, he is a boy who went missing at the age of seven in December of 1972. He never made it home from school, and it was years before anybody found out the fate of Stephen Stainer. However, when Stephen Stainer returned at the age of 14, he was not only a victim of kidnapping, he was a hero. Before I tell you how, I really just want to thank you guys for tuning into my podcast. This is something that I really love to do. I've always loved true crime. I'd like to create my own little true crime community where we can talk about things. And, you know, there's also a lot of things to learn from true crime. I've learned the costs that greed and envy can get you, what true betrayal is, and that it can happen from anybody. So really stay diligent. And I've also learned a lot of good ways to stay safe and to protect me and my family. Now, today's case is about child kidnapping and abduction and molestation. So please guys, if you take anything from this first take note of how brave Steven Stainer was for being a victim of abduction and finding a way back home. And then also keep in mind that, you know, his case went undetected for a really long time when he was kidnapped and you need to really stay diligent because we have to protect the children in this world. Without further ado, let's get started. Stephen Stainer was born in 1965 to parents Kay and Delbert Stainer. Now, he had two older siblings, a brother named Carrie, a sister named Cynthia, and then two younger sisters, Corey and Jody. At the time of Stephen's abduction, he was seven years old. He was a blonde-haired, fair-skinned little boy. And on his way home, somebody approached him asking if his parents would want to make a donation to their church. They were passing out cassettes, and Stephen told them that his mom might want to make a donation. When they asked him if he wanted to get in the car for a ride there, he steadily declined repeatedly saying that he wasn't supposed to get in the car with strangers and you know yada 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 however after being urged and urged a few times and told it was fine he reluctantly got in the car now what little Stephen didn't know was that once he got in that car he wasn't going to be driven to his mom's to get a donation in fact it would be many years before Stephen ever made it back to his home meanwhile the family became concerned when Stephen didn't make it home, and they immediately began canvassing the neighborhood and trying to figure out where Steve would have gone. There was no sign of Stephen, and nobody really had any clues to follow or a way to trace him. It was like he vanished into thin air. Let's remember the year is 1972, so a lot of things are different. There's no social media. People can't just pick up their cell phones and send a quick text or even just make a call whenever they want. This was probably something that I bet people dealt with a little bit more often, their kids being a little bit late, 
you know, something coming up. Maybe they stopped to talk to somebody. Maybe they got distracted like kids often do. I can think of many of times that I've known parents to get a little bit concerned because, you know, their child was running behind schedule or something was just like a little bit off and things didn't turn out for the worst. So I totally get this. I'm not sure the exact sequence of events, but I do know it was rather soon after Stephen didn't return home that everyone kind of became alarmed. Again, despite the quick call to action and alarm, they still were too late to find any sign of Stephen. Now I'm going to tell you guys what happened to Stephen that day. So at Yosemite National Park, two men, Erwin Edward Murphy and Kenneth Parnell both worked together. Now, Parnell knew that Irvin was a real thumper and pretty dumb. He was someone who was really easy to take advantage of. So Irvin would pass out gospel tracts to boys and ask if their parents would donate. The idea was that Parnell told Irvin if he could get a boy off the streets, he would be able to religiously minister him the proper way and give him a real, real Bible-based upbringing. But what Parnell was really trying to do was Parnell was trying to find a little boy that he could abduct and keep as a child for him to personally molest. Kenneth Parnell was a really sick man. You see, he'd actually spent many of his time growing up in and out of juvenile and mental institutions as a kid. And he'd been married two times, but during his first marriage, he was arrested and charged for sodomizing a boy and impersonating an officer. This was in 1951, the same year his daughter was born. He received a four-year sentence and his wife divorced him in 1957. It was only a year later that he had another daughter and 10 years after that, around 1967, he'd been convicted of armed robbery in Utah and his second wife left him also. So that's a little bit of history on Parnell. After manipulating and convincing Irvin Edward Murphy that he needed to abduct a little boy, on December 4th, 1972, they went out and Irwin, I keep wanting to say Irwin, it's Irvin, and Irvin began passing out gospel tracts to boys as he always did and telling them that he was trying to collect money and donations for his church if his parents would be interested. Now remember, Stephen was only seven years old and this is in 1972 where things are a little bit different. You know, kids are trusted to walk home alone from the bus at this age and, you know, life is just different at this point in time. So Stephen did tell him that his mom would probably donate to the church if he came to his house. So Stephen was reluctant to get in the car, however, and wanted to remain on foot. And in a later interview after Stephen was reunited with his family, he said that he told them no and that he was just going to continue walking, but they just kept insisting and they kept telling him it was fine. So finally, he just reluctantly got into the car. Sometime after, they stopped at a payphone in which Parnell proceeded to get out of the car and get on the phone. Once he returned back to the car, he told Stephen that his parents said that he could have a sleepover. Now, Stephen's parents were rather authoritative in their approach of parenting, so whenever an adult instructed this, Stephen didn't really question it. He just kind of went with the flow. Instead, Parnell and Irvin took Stephen out to Parnell's 
cabin on Yosemite National Park where he kind of lived on site where he worked. And he kept Stephen drugged on cough medicine for the next couple days. He immediately took to molesting Stephen since day one and told him that his parents actually did not want him, that he was to be Parnell's son now. And Stephen thought, okay, if that's what he said, my parents said, that's what he said, my parents said. And he kind of went with it. Apparently, Parnell told him, brainwashing him and manipulating him, that he'd been adopted by him and his parents signed over their rights because they just couldn't afford five kids. Stephen sounds like he must have been a rather submissive child because he actually believes him and he listened and he obeyed and he was a pretty good kid for for Parnell. Now, Stephen ended up going by Dennis Gregory Parnell and Kenneth Parnell actually enrolled Stephen into school, different ones over the next seven years. As Stephen got older, he allowed him to drink at a young age, gave him cigarettes, lots of freedom. He could basically come and go as he pleased once he earned Parnell's trust. He would even leave Stephen for periods of time. And Stephen says he just wasn't even sure how or where to get help or who to tell what was going on to. Now, Parnell had begun molesting Stephen since day one and raping him after merely two weeks in captivity. Early into Stephen's abduction, Barbara Mathias became involved. She kind of acted as Stephen's mom for almost two damn years. Now, she claimed to not know that he was kidnapped. She thought that his mom died, Parnell's ex. She actually met the boy's real mom years later and maintained the same story that she didn't know. I found an article from the registered guard that said Mathis had a son who was 12 and that her son would even play with Stephen at the time. Now, according to the book about Stephen's abduction titled, I Know My First Name is Stephen by Mike Eccles in 1999, Barb Mathis participated in the sexual abuse during these 18 months. He also writes that Miss Mathis had a failed attempt at luring a boy for Purnell herself from a boys club with Stainer in her car. Ugh, what a sick bitch. So, Kenneth Purnell moved around a lot with Stephen, but he was able to not arouse suspicion and people actually believed that Stephen was his son. He did this by keeping a low profile, working regular jobs, and by simply keeping him in flea bag motels, shitty trailers, and eventually out in damn near the middle of nowhere. He lived so far out, it was a 30-minute bus ride home in Modesto. It blows my mind to think that although Parnell was moving Stephen around place to place over the next seven years, they were still in the same state that Stephen was abducted from, California, merely 300 miles away. Now, back then it was a whole lot easier to move around and cover up because paperwork did not have an electronic database. This is when people actually had to physically go and pick up their files and tote them from point A to point B and communication varied greatly. Now, in 1976, they were in Compshi in a trailer very far away. This was four years into Stephen's abduction. This is where the 30-minute bus ride to Mendocino High School. He even 
maintained a pretty normal life. Like I said, he could come and go as he pleased after a while. Stephen was a really fun, spunky kid as described by his girlfriend, Lori. He liked fishing. He liked riding bikes. He liked hanging out. He had classmates and everyone had amazing and all good things to say. The only question that people had was, why did he stay? Why didn't he tell anybody? And why didn't he walk away? Well, I mean, this is all just thoughts, but for one, he was dependent on Parnell just like a child is to their parent. And some believe that he really didn't want anybody to know about the ongoing sexual abuse. Stephen, like I said, got a lot of freedom. And so this was maybe just like a trade-off, like most, you know, immature teenagers would think, okay, I'll just get through this. It'll be fine. However, once Stephen reached puberty, he was no longer an interest to Parnell. You see, Parnell, like most pedophiles, only wanted a boy who was prepubescent. Parnell now needed a new boy because Stephen had hit puberty, and he enlisted Stephen for the job of helping him kidnap another child. <gasps> uh, can you imagine? Uh. Stephen, being the good child that he was and the good person that he was, did not want to do this. And so he purposely failed at many kidnapping attempts of little boys for Parnell. However, Parnell enlisted a friend of Timothy White named Randall Sean Poorman. He used him to be a ride-along accomplice in the kidnapping of five-year-old Timothy White from Ukiah. In preparation of this, Parnell had moved Stephen to Manchester in a cabin which was a one-room shack in the middle of nowhere. And that's when he then abducted Timothy White and brought him to stay with him and Stephen. It was 1980, February 3rd. Now, after two weeks of watching Timmy go through agonizing suffering because of the separation from his family, Stephen could not sit by and watch it anymore. He said that I was not going to let that child go through what I'd already been through. This was according to his girlfriend, Lori Duke. This is my favorite part of the story. So March 1st, 1980, Kenneth Parnell went to work. Now, Kenneth Parnell worked in an overnight job. And when he went to work, Stephen took Timmy and they hitchhiked to Ukiah. But it was really dark and neither of them could remember where Timmy lived and how to get to his house from there. So he decided he's going to have to take Timmy to the police station. That way they could get him home. I mean, for one, they'd also been gone way too long and Stephen knew that Parnell was going to notice their absence. Now, when they coincidentally ran into two police officers around the corner from where they'd been, Stephen kind of panicked and he kind of just told officers what was going on with little Timmy. And when they took him into the station and they went to talk to him, he told them who he was and what was going on. He said the famous words, I know my first name is Stephen. He'd been held captive so long, all he remembered was the first of his birth name, not his full name. I mean, can you imagine the bravery of this boy? And he could have easily been like, oh, thank God it's over for me. Parnell's going to let me go. I'm almost an adult, just a couple years, and I'll blow this hell hole and never come back. But instead, he really took a big risk and rescued that boy, Timmy White, from years of molestation and sexual abuse. 
oh, that's amazing. So Stephen became a national headline and he was a hero. He was on Good Morning America and he had a great demeanor and attitude. It totally blows my mind how calm, cool, collected, and level-headed he seemed. Now, March 2nd, 1980, just one day after the boys had returned to home, Parnell was arrested on kidnapping suspicion. He had a previous sodomy conviction, so he was both tried and convicted, but he was only sentenced to seven years and served five. Jesus, that's freaking nuts. You can kidnap someone and only basically get sentenced a year per year that you kidnapped them, and he didn't even serve all seven years. He was never convicted for the sexual abuse because one, it was a jurisdictional issue, and two, there was a statute of limitation on some of the abuse. His accomplices were Murphy and Poorman, and they both had lesser charges. Now, Stephen maintained Irvin Murphy was just as much a victim of Parnell's manipulation as Stephen and Timothy had been. This was the dumb thumper that Parnell was able to convince to solicit the gospel to little boys so he could kidnap a boy to raise him in a very religiously strict way which aligned with what Irvin thought children needed. Stephen Stainer made national headlines and he actually underwent very little counseling returning home. He never disclosed his sexual abuse details and his sisters say that his parents insisted he was fine. He Ended up, though, dropping out of high school due to bullying about molestation. Kids can be so cruel. But he did continue life, and he went on to get married in 85. He had two children, a beautiful wife, and lived in Merced. He worked at a pizza shop and had just joined the Church of Latter-day Saints, which is the Mormon church. He worked with child abduction groups and spoke to kids about safety, public safety, Unfortunately, he met his death in 89 at the young age of 24 when he suffered a fatal head wound in a motorcycle accident. Uh, Timothy White, the boy that he rescued, was a pallbearer at Stephen's funeral. Timothy was 14 at the time. 500 people attended the funeral of Stephen Stainer. Now, in 2005, Timothy White became an L.A. County Sheriff Deputy. He too gave lectures to kids about his experience having been kidnapped and about kidnapping. Unfortunately for Timothy White, he passed away April 1st, 2010 at the young age of 36 from a pulmonary embolism. What happened to Parnell? Kenneth Parnell actually was tried again in 2004 for human trafficking in an attempt to kidnap a child. He had asked his caregiver, who was very, very informed about Kenneth Parnell's past, he asked her if she could secure him a four-year-old little boy for him to purchase. <gasps> sick, sick. You know, this is the problem with short terms for sexually heinous crimes, especially sexually heinous crimes against children. This is ridiculous that he only got seven years, especially when he had a prior for sodomy. As crazy and tragic as that story is, the Stainer family goes on to have many more tragedies. You see, Stephen's uncle was shot to death in his home with a gunshot wound to the chest in the middle of the afternoon. And then Stephen's oldest brother became an American serial killer. Carrie Stainer. Buckle up. 
he was not a hero like his brother, Stephen. Lucky for you guys, I will be dropping the bombshell on Casey Stainer in a mini episode that will release midweek. Yay! A bonus episode. Now, before I end this, I want to play a interview that was with Stephen Stainer, March 14th, 1980. This is after his return home to his family. And I just want you guys to hear his voice and his version of what happened. Uh, yes, um, I was walking home from school and I was stopped by a man along the street just a few blocks from my house. And he um, asked me if I wanted to, me or my, my mother wanted to donate something to a church. I had told him that uh, my mother would probably want to. And so he offered me a ride home. I had um, refused the first time telling him that uh, my house is just a few blocks away. He had asked me several more times and after a while I had taken a ride. And then uh, a car pulled up and I got in and they, they passed the road that I was, that I lived on and I had told them that that was the road I lived on. They said that we'll just uh, call your parents see if you can stay the night. What what did they tell you as the days went on? Why why they were keeping you with them, and what did they tell you about your family? The first night they had said they called my parents and said it was all right that I stayed the night. The second night they said that they had called them again and said they, that I could stay another night. Then um, one of them went to uh, went out and came back and said that he went to court and got in possession of me and said that I was his. It was kind of a shock to me. You called him. I'm, I've been told that you called him dad. How long before you started calling him dad? Do you have any idea when that started? Um, that started about a week after my abduction. Now, that interview was made available by ABC News, and what's really crazy about it is how cool Common Collective Steven Stainer was in the interview. Stay tuned, guys, because on Wednesday, when we do a midweek mini-episode, there's a lot of things in Steven Stainer's older brother Casey Stainer's murder trial that come out that, to me, paint a picture of maybe why Steven didn't speak out and didn't tell people that he was kidnapped for those seven years. Now it's all speculation, just my opinion, but I would love for you guys to join me and let me know what you all think. Do you guys think that Parnell's girlfriend, Miss Mathis, knew Stephen was abducted and participated in molesting him? If so, what would give her the balls to later say that she hadn't and make contact with Stephen's real parents? Now, that was later after Stephen Ben returned home. Another question I have about the case is, I want to know if you guys were surprised by how cool, calm, and collective Stephen became. And if anybody was as shocked as I am that Stephen later joined the Church of Latter-day Saints. I'm not surprised because it was the Mormon church. I'm just surprised he later joined any church, especially one that, you know, requires such a such a devotion to their way of life. 
Anyway, guys, thanks so much for joining me. If you're listening on Apple, please leave me a review. Love a review. Tell your friends about Storytime and hop on my social medias, Instagram and Facebook, Storytime Slayer, to see more pictures, videos, interviews, and just to communicate and start a little, you know, chit chat about this stuff. Anyway, have a great day, guys. Bye.